All right, we're going to be in Esther chapter 1 today. As, and I'm going to invite you to look that up in your Bibles. It's in the Old Testament, and it's okay if you don't know where it's at. Just go to the table of contents. I've done it before, and look what page is Esther chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1. But as you're looking this up, I want you to think of a time, a time in your life where you were earnestly praying to God. You really, when you really wanted God to show up in your life in a very specific and very profound way. And you would pour your heart day after day after day, crying out to God and nothing, nothing. It seemed like he was silent. It seems like he was far away. It might even seem like he was not really interested in your life. Now we know, we know that God answers prayer. But let's be honest. There are times when God seems silent, doesn't he? So this morning, as we study Esther chapter 1, we're going to ask this question. What should we do when God seems silent? Let's start with verse 1. Now, in the days of Asherus, the Asherus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Asherus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The armies of Persia and Medea and all the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were complete, the king gave for all the people, President Seuss of the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was in accordance with this edict. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of this palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king Asterisk. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti, she refused to come at the king's command. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This is the word of the Lord. I love the book of Esther. It's one of my favorite books in all the New Old Testament because this book is super weird. First of all, it's a great story. It should be a movie. There is a lot of plot twists. There's just a lot of craziness going on, and it is a super great story. But at the same time, you think a book in the Bible would have mentioned the name of God at least once. But Esther never mentions God's name. God seems silent to his people. He seems like he's a little disinterested in their lives. He's not really active in their circumstances. The book of Esther, though, it's not trying to communicate that God is not interested in his people or that God is really not important to what's going on. Rather, this book is extending an invitation, an invitation to all of us who study it to look for God's activity, 
to look for God's activity. See, if you pay really close attention, you will see God's activity working for his glory and for his people's good. And if you notice, you'll also see in the book of Esther, like all of scripture, how it points us to Jesus. So we need to understand kind of Esther 1, its historical purposes and background, if we're really going to get a lot out of this sermon today. So let's look at the background for a little bit, okay? The book of Esther was designed to remind Israel why they celebrated the Feast of Purim. This feast celebrated God and how he delivered his people from the Persian Empire. It was a celebration that actually encouraged people to look back and remember, to look back and remember how active and how loving God has been in their lives and in their people's lives. And at this time, the Persian Empire is replacing the Babylonians as one of the major superpowers. Israel had been under the control of Babylonians for generations. The shift in global power briefly gave Israel some hope. Maybe now, maybe now we will be free. But the Persians, they didn't end up being liberators. They were actually persecutors. And we find in, in Esther that there is actually a plot to wipe out the Jewish people. Not just kill a few, but wipe them off the face of the earth. So why was God? Why was God allowing his people to face so many hardships? They'd been unfaithful to God for generations. And God was trying to get their attention. God had been speaking and directing, but they were not listening or obeying. Now, we haven't even started with chapter 1 yet. And we, also, we always have some things we can apply to our lives right now. Let's kind of review, okay? What should we do when God seems silent? Well, the first thing, we need to get curious. Consider God's silence as an invitation to look for God's work. Remember, God not only speaks, he acts. Look back and remember. Celebrate and worship God for what he's already done in your life. And then ask. Ask this very hard question. Am I listening? See, God was talking to his people. Israel wasn't listening. That's why they were in exile. Now, that's just the start. We're going to unpack this fourth thing that we really need to be paying attention to. And Esther chapter 1 really unpacks for us today. Because we also need to guard our hearts. God has a way to using those moments of silence to reveal what is stored up deep within our souls. We see those sinful passions that we often ignore when we're really busy in those moments of silence. When God seems silent, we learn the many ways we try to escape or fill that silence, to fill the void in our lives. So here's our first point. As we look at Esther chapter 1, we have to learn to guard our hearts from stealing God's glory. So as we read, we're introduced to King Asherus. That was his Hebrew name. He's better known as Xerxes. Now, if it's okay with you, for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to talk, call him Xerxes. Because first of all, Asherus is really hard to say. If I say it over and over again, I might say a bad word. All right, so... King Xerxes, that was what he's commonly known by. Xerxes' kingdom was huge, consisting of 127 provinces, from modern-day India all the way to the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia. And he had, Xerxes was a big deal. I mean, but he had one problem. He lived in the shadow of his late father, King Darius, King Darius the Great. 
King Darius gave his son everything he could, wealth, position, power, even influence. But Darius could not give his son the one thing he craved the most, greatness. His father was King Darius the Great. He was Xerxes I. Xerxes was desperate to be great. So he came up with a plan. I'm going to throw a six-month party. I'm going to invite all the important people and leaders within the Persian Empire. I'm going to use this six months to impress these guys and then convince them that we can go to war with the Greeks. And if I can go to war with the Greeks, and if we can win, then I too will be great. Well, history tells us that his passion for greatness and his fascination with the Greeks almost put his kingdom into bankruptcy. But we don't learn that in the Bible. No expense was spared, though. No expense was spared at this party. No indulgence would have been denied. Xerxes pulled out all the stops. Gold, precious stones, fine linen, limitless food and drink. All the guests got to see his inherited wealth on display. Did you notice that detail I just shared with you? All of his inherited wealth? All the gold, all the jewels were reflecting King Darius' greatness, not his. King Darius had accumulated and acquired those things. It was a testimony to what he had done in his reign. But his son, his son was stealing his glory. He was taking credit for what his father had done. We can be easily tempted to do the same thing with God. We can often steal God's glory, or at least try to. The idea of God's glory is really hard to wrap our hearts and minds around. It really, really is. Because God is something other. He's in a class by himself. And his glory, we just can't fully comprehend it. Because his, he has infinite perfections, he has infinite greatness, he has infinite worth. And we are not infinite. In other words, we can't accurately describe the vast nature of God with our limited human understanding and our finite vocabulary. Even when we see it through nature, even God's word, the words cannot be mustered up to fully say everything about the glory of God. And that is a really good thing, folks. It keeps our attention. It captures our hearts. But did you know? Did you know that God actually pursued, uh, uh, designed you and me to pursue glory and glorious things? But we must guard our hearts because sin turns us into glory thieves. Paul Tripp has written a lot about this, and I want to share a little bit what he has learned. The original design for human beings was to live in a glorious world and exist in perfect relational harmony with a glorious God. But sin corrupted the original design, and now you and I have a desire to live for ourselves. Instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We demand to be the center of our world to take credit for what only God can produce. We want to be sovereign. We want others to worship us. We establish our own kingdoms and punish those who break our laws. We tell others that we are entitled to what we don't deserve, and we complain when we don't get whatever it is that we want. It's a glory disaster. Where we chase after glory can vary, but one thing is for certain. This hunger for glory will never be satisfied by created things. Creation has no capacity whatsoever to bring contentment to our hearts. The only, only God can satisfy our hunger. And in satisfying our hunger, give peace and rest to our hearts. 
Doesn't that sound exactly like Xerxes? He wanted to be the center of the world. He wanted other people to worship him. He's trying to establish a kingdom and punish those who broke his laws. But it also sounds a lot like many Jesus followers. Look at our prayer life. How much of it is focused on our wants, wishes, or desires? I mean, God wants us to bring all of our cares and concerns before him. He invites us to do that. But how much of our time is spent on us like we were the center of the world? How about our worship? We all want to be praised, don't we? We want to be praised for our parenting, our leadership, our successes, our promotions, even our spiritual gifts. You are such a gifted fill-in-the-blank. Yes, I am. You don't say that out loud, but that's what you're thinking. Yes, I am. Stop it, really. Stop it. You know? And many believers act as if they were sovereign. God, I don't want you to be in control, but you can be my co-pilot. Jesus, don't you dare take the wheel. Who needs Taylor Swift? we got Carrie Underwood in here today. Right? Right? You can be my co-pilot. We can be glory thieves. But here's some good news today, folks. We do not have to be controlled by our sinful desires to have God's glory. King Jesus, the one true and great king, doesn't steal God the Father's glory. He celebrates and points us to the glory of God. And we do not have to steal God's glory because through Jesus, we have the privilege of participating in glorifying and enjoying God. We don't have to steal God's glory because we can bask in the glory of God. This is why each person in this room exists. This is why each person in this room exists. And it can be explained by this simple theological statement. We exist to glorify God and we exist to enjoy him to glorify and enjoy God in our corporate worship and quiet time, to glorify and enjoy God through our family relationships and our friendships, to glorify and enjoy God in the way we approach our vocation and work each and every day. And you can go through the details of your life and you can say, I can glorify and enjoy God by mowing your lawn really well. This is how we participate and how we enjoy the things that God has given us. So we don't have to try to steal God's glory because we get to, we get to glorify him. And through Jesus, we have that privilege. And it's only through Jesus that we have that privilege even right now. So when God seems silent, we learn the many ways we try to self-medicate, try to escape and try to fill that silence or void in our lives. And one way is we try to steal some glory. So we need to guard our hearts. The second way is that we start living frivolously. We live frivolously. Now, notice how Esther chapter 1 describes this six-month party. Once you get past the extravagance, all that's left there is a bunch of shallow and sad people. Right? Once you get past all the really cool stuff that is described in Esther chapter 1, all you have is a bunch of people who are in transactional relationships. I was growing up in Texas. One of my mentors talked about like two ticks sucking off each other. A bunch of takers, a bunch of parasites. Everyone in that room is a taker, and takers are superficial. Xerxes, a taker. He's throwing a party for one purpose only, to go to war and maybe he'd be great. He's using those people. It's superficial. The guests, they are not fools. They know exactly what Xerxes is trying to do, and they go, well, guess what? an all-inclusive six-month vacation, and all I have to do is sit through a presentation, I'm in. 
I'm in. I'm in. All expenses played. Superficial. They were together for six months, filling their days with drunken debauchery. Superficial. But again, we cannot get judgmental because we do the same things in just different ways. We can fill our conversations with gossip and rumors. Mid-Southerners, we love some gossip and rumors, don't we? We do. I mean, I get it. You turn on the news in the morning and there's a lot of violent crime, and so it's just nice to know in their neighborhood who's doing what with who. Right? And the only people who love gossip more than Mid-Southerners are Mid-Southerners that go to church. If you giggle, it doesn't hurt so bad. It's just easier to keep it shallow and talk about others than actually share with people what's going on beneath the surface of our own lives. We can lose ourselves in social media, frivolous. I mean, I'm going to get carpal tunnel one day from doing this. Not this, but this, okay? And Amazon. Amazon, for many people, is a drug of choice, filling the voids of our lives with more stuff we don't need. When God seems distant or silent, we can easily fill that silence with frivolous activity, and the frivolous life will always lead to the empty life. But we can fight frivolous living. And the way we do that is through deep friendships with imperfect people who will point us to Jesus. Now, this is a hypothetical. What if Xerxes, instead of inviting all the leaders in Persia to a party, he had a retreat? A time of planning, strategic planning and reflection, maybe even prayer. And Xerxes brought up this idea. You know what, guys? I think we ought to go to the war with the Greeks. I think we need to expand our kingdom. I think it would benefit all of our people if we had a little bit more land. And what if, at this hypothetical meeting, someone stood up and suggested, uh, excuse me, king, before we go into battle, can we talk about all the needs that we see in the various provinces that we represent? And after a long discussion, they decided not to fight, but to pour their resources in serving those under their authority and care. Now, if that hypothetical were true, and if Xerxes took that advice, do you think he would have been remembered as a great and loving king? King Jesus had a very similar conversation with his disciples. The disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You can find it in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus was very, very clear. It was not the one who desires to be better than others. It was not the one who was striving for greatness. It was the one who is willing to become a servant. And Jesus made it very, very clear about what he was all about. He said, I did not come to this earth to be served, rather to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And we have to understand that Jesus is not just our king and our savior, but he also calls us our friend. Jesus, our friend, not, people, not a savior whom we make alliances with, not just a casual acquaintance, but Jesus, our friend, directs us away from frivolous conversations and selfish desires towards truth and meaning. That's what Jesus wants to do. So how do we fight frivolous living? We model what Jesus did for his disciples. Cultivating Christ-centered friendships is just one significant way to avoid the frivolous life. Friendship is a gift from God. But let me ask you, do you pursue these kind of friendships? Think about your circle of friends right now. Who consistently and lovingly points you away from frivolous sin, 
frivolous conversations and distractions and toward Jesus. Think about it. Think about your circle of friends, those, those people that are in your inner circle. Who points you to Jesus? Who kindly says, uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, is that the best God has for you? My fear is that a lot of us can't think of one person right now. This is a gift from God. And the only reason you may not have it is because you haven't invested in it. When God seems silent, we try to feed the voids. When God seems silent, we try to fill the voids. And we even try to use others to fill that void. All right, so, so far, Xerxes has been hungry for glory. And he's just being frivolous with his life and resources. Now we get to verses 10 through 12. And the boy gets stupid. I mean, he just gets absolutely stupid. After the 180-day extravaganza, there's like this seven-day feast. And the men are good and drunk. And then he calls for his wife, Vashti. Now, there's an Old Testament scholar named Marion Ann Taylor. And she points out, she's really an expert in this ancient Near East culture. And she points out that in this ancient culture, when the men got good and drunk, the wives would leave the party. The wives would leave the party and they would bring in the dancing girls and concubines. Notice when Xerxes calls for Vashti. He was commanding her to wear nothing but her crown and parade his wife in front of a group of drunken men to do you know, in Xerxes' blind hunger for greatness and glory, he offers up his wife. I mean, he gets to that level. When God seems silent or absent, we'll try to fill the void too. And many times we just use, maybe not to the extreme that Xerxes has done, but we will use people. I mean, if that weren't the case, why else would the New Testament be filled with verses showing Jesus' followers how to treat others? Because God's ways are not intuitive and they're not natural. And the wisdom of this world is focused on ourselves. Put yourself first. You can't love anybody until you love yourself first, which is a lie. You, you are number one. You need to make yourself a priority. But we see the summary of all the teachings in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2 when it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking after your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. When the Bible says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, we are being invited to examine everything in our lives. Everything in our lives that we might use others to advance ourselves. Fill our needs, want, wishes, or desires, or cravings. We're, we're asked to, to examine everything because everything can be infected with selfishness. But this would be absolutely impossible. Putting other people first would be absolutely impossible if it's not for Jesus. And that's really good news, folks. That's part of the gospel. I mean, Xerxes is, he's pimping out his wife. Can't put it any other way. This is what Jesus does in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife, 
just as Christ loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Notice what the text says, that Jesus gave, past tense, once, final, forever. Then he is cleansing an ongoing present action in our lives. So there might be times where you think God seems silent or distant. He's not. He's not. He's near. He's interested. He's active. He's do- he is active in all of our circumstances. He sees you, and he's serving you. He is serving you. The Bible says he's actually praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf to God the Father. He's not ignoring you, and he's definitely not using you. God, the one true great king, made a way so we could live differently. King Xerxes, that is a way of life. That's a 21st century way of life still. That is how most people are ruled. But we can be ruled by something that gives us freedom. We are made. Jesus made a way so we can glorify and enjoy God in all things. Jesus made a way that we can escape shallow and the frivolous life. Jesus made a way. And the only way to be free from our sinful impulses, the impulse of using others. Why? Because Jesus meets all of our needs. We don't have to use others because he gives us good gifts. So the question, what do we do when God is silent? We have to get curious. Consider it an invitation to look for God at work. Look back and remember. Celebrate and worship God for what he has already done. Listen. Listen. He might be speaking. But we can't forget to guard our hearts and to trust his promises. Because when God seems silent, he's not. But we will use that silence as an excuse to try to fill those voids with selfish things. This is what God's teaching us in Esther chapter 1. I trust that the Holy Spirit will apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Father, you are really good. Your glory we can't describe. We can't fully put into words. But we've got a glimpse of it today through our worship together, through the connections that we've had in the lobby and in this room afterwards. And we see your goodness and your glory in the world, in your word. Thank you for King Jesus, the one true and great King. Thank you, Lord, that you show us and remind us of the, of the pitfalls that are out there for us, the ways that we try to fill the voids of our lives, the things that only lead to shallows shallow and selfish living. And I pray, first I pray for myself that I won't walk away today thinking about the Tigers game or the next game after that and not sit some time in some silence and let you apply some of these truths to my life. And I pray the same for my friends in this room here. Continue to shape us, mold us, and refine us and the people that you're wanting us to be. But thank you for loving us, even though we're not there yet. We pray this in the great King's name, Jesus. Amen.